and here we go again with another Vince August podcast. This one is uh, part two of the follow-up to the American Sniper podcast, um, a review of American Sniper with uh, a U.S. soldier that served in Iraq. Um, Really looking forward to this second interview today. Um, Before we get into that interview, though, uh, just to touch on a couple news topics while they're hot. Uh, Lance Armstrong, clearly once a liar, always a liar. Uh, If you did not see in the news uh, this lightning rod for deception uh, after years of lying about use of steroids and and performance-enhancing drugs and, and blood doping and everything else, he finally came clean and... Uh, admitted on Oprah Winfrey in what I thought was a self-preservation interview to try to save what was left of his legacy when it was pretty clear um, it was over for him. Uh, he, you know, he gave this half-hearted apology to some people, didn't give it to other people. I did not think he was being sincere at the time. I, again, I thought it was an act of self-preservation. Well, sure enough, Lance is at it again. Uh, last night, it's alleged uh, he was involved in an auto accident where he was, again, allegedly drunk, operated his vehicle, uh, crashed. Uh, he was with his girlfriend at the time who jumped out of the car went to the homeowner, I guess, whose house or whatever tree yard they crashed into, explained that Lance was in an accident, possibly drunk. Um, You know, don't call the cops. We'll take care of this. We're going to pay for all the damage. And then they took off. Uh, When cops catch up to Lance Armstrong, they tell the story that it was the girlfriend driving. It was not Lance. And this was all this charade, again, all done to protect the brand that is Lance Armstrong. And it did not take long before the truth came out. And apparently and allegedly, again, nothing's been proven. It was Lance operating the vehicle, not his girlfriend. And this guy is he's just pathological, man. He's a pathological liar. Um, And you know what? There's not enough that can fall on him to keep him out of cycling and running and anything entertainment, anything that can make him money at this point. Because, you know, the lives he ruined, the people's lives he shattered with all of his lies still, still has not left an impact on him because he can still and at this moment failed to take responsibility for his own actions in something as simple as a one-car accident where he did damage to someone else's property. I mean, come on, man. Are you kidding me? Really? You're worried about the media coverage? How about the media coverage you're getting now? You could have had media coverage where Lance Armstrong makes a mistake and immediately owns up to it. Instead, Lance Armstrong makes a mistake, and guess what? Lying again. So, uh, Lance Armstrong, you, your your shameful ways continue, and you're you're really just digging that hole of disgrace deeper and deeper for yourself. 
Um, the second story is going to kind of lead into what is part two of um, our discussion of American Sniper. And in the news, uh, just an absolute tragic story out of the Middle East. The Jordanian pilot was apparently placed in a cage. A Jordanian pilot who was captured while running missions. Uh, the Islamic State captured him. Um, they have been holding him for ransom for exchange for prisoner exchange. Um, if, if you've lived under a rock and you haven't been following this story, uh, there's been a lot of outcry um, to try to protect this soldier and at least, you know, have him exchanged or, or kept alive while these negotiations went on. Well, apparently he was placed in a cage and burned to death. Now, you have to understand, you know, a lot of people have an immediate reaction to the Middle East and their culture as barbaric, as, you know, their animals, they're this, they're that. And, and listen, we, we even see it portrayed that way in the movie American Sniper. But even something like burning someone to death is considered barbaric by their standards. Um, this is a culture that normally when they conduct executions, they do things such as hangings, uh, beheadings. Uh, they're still even stoning people to death in certain cultures, in certain countries there. What they did to this pilot outraged pretty much everybody in the Middle East. Now, you have to understand that there are some countries that have really come together and bonded with the United States with regards to the battle against this extreme Muslim state and ISIS, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, Jordan, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, Qatar, um, just going off the top of my head. I mean, these are countries that have kind of taken the side of the coalition against these terror groups. You know, then you have countries that, of course, are predominantly Muslim. Um, Turkey is a predominantly Muslim country. Even, you know, Turkey denounced the actions of burning this captured pilot. Iran, think about Iran and, and some of the things that you've heard come out of the president of Iran's mouth and the United Nations and everything else. Again, a country that stones people to death, beheadings, hangings, even, you know, they come out and say, you know, this isn't what we're supposed to do as Muslims. Um, you know, something like burning someone to death, that's left to God's hands. That's not something that's done here. The defense of all of this, believe it or not, is the eye for an eye rationality. If he's a pilot dropping bombs, those bombs eventually lead to people being burned to death. So you know what? We're allowed to take the same action on him. The point I'm getting at with all of this is when you have a culture of terrorism that is as extreme as the culture we're looking at, eventually... They will cannibalize themselves. Eventually, they will turn their own people against themselves. And that's one of the reasons I've always said, I don't think we should have left Iraq. I really don't. I think what we should have done in the situation of Iraq is we should have taken responsibility for starting a war with a sovereign nation that maybe we should not have attacked. And we should have gone in after the fact and tried to rebuild the nation, occupy the nation, 
and start to rebuild it by giving them access to schools. Go in there and build an infrastructure. If you take that approach, you know, you start to give those people access to the things they need. You are not just this country that comes in, creates war, or, you know, comes in with battle gear and then leaves. And as you see what's happening, even the the Arab nations will eventually see what ISIS is. They're going to see what this extremist you know, reaction is, this terrorist reaction is, and they're all going to bond together. That's why I felt it was so important to be in France uh, with that march you know, down the, the, the streets of France with all the national leaders. It's not always about military action. Sometimes you have to take some other type of action and show that you are part of a coalition in some other way because eventually evil will show its face to be exactly what it is, evil. And you're not going to need all that much to convince the world you're right. It doesn't always have to be with, you know, with force and might and strength. Sometimes it's, listen, just let them expose themselves for what they are. Think about people in your own life. Let's take this out of a political context. Let's put this right at home. Think about people in your life that are toxic. Think about people that spread rumors. Think about people that are constantly talking behind people's back. Okay, you can confront these people on a regular and consistent basis you can try to tell the people around them listen you don't understand what type of person that is or you could distance yourself from that person continue to be friends with the person that that person's friend was maintain a relationship maintain your dignity and let that toxic person show what they are and eventually if a person is that toxic if a person is that you know, inherently bad of a person, they will show their colors to everyone and everyone will pick up on it. You know, that's the whole thing with karma. Let karma take its turn. And, you know, it's it's going to take its turn with these extremists in the Middle East. Um, you know, again, but the, one of the things I really believe that America needs to do is we need to take further action in a humanitarian way and show Yes, listen, not only do we support you with military might, but we support you in other ways. And I I really think we have to start building relationships with the Arab nation because I I really believe, and I've said this over and over again, it's such a small percentage of Muslims that are part of this, you know, this world order of ISIS. It's 2%. It it creates a huge number because of the, the vast number of Muslims. But that's not what that culture is. It really isn't. It really isn't. It's it's a peaceful culture. Um, unfortunately, what what's highlighted, as is always highlighted, even in the United States, we see what's always highlighted. We always highlight, you know, the, the cops that do wrong. You never talk about the hundreds of thousands of arrests that occur during a day where there is no police brutality. You always highlight those those small instances in a small percentage where they are. This is no different. So um, that's just a quick news catch up. Which will lead into part two that we've uh, that I've been doing on this podcast uh, that I did the last podcast where I interviewed um, BT, who was a soldier who went through West Point and served in Iraq, and we talked about American Sniper, and I, I want to continue that again by having a second guest just to see if we can have a, a different opinion, 
maybe, you know, a corroborating opinion, but someone who took a different path to becoming uh, a soldier and serving his country. And this is someone who I've actually uh, known through social media for several years now, and uh, we've, we've never had the pleasure of meeting, um, but we've maintained, and it, this is the great thing about social media. You do get to meet people and, and become friends with people that you admire and respect, and this is one of those friendships. And when I, I had to find someone to interview and talk about this film, and not only the film, and because it's not just about the movie, it's about how it affects our society, what our view is of the war, not only through our eyes, but the soldiers who, who actually served there. So to me, there was only one choice, and I've been lucky enough to have two interviews, and this is the second one, but I absolutely had to speak to this one individual in particular. And again, I'm going to protect his identity. I'm going to refer to him as DR, um, and he's with us right now. DR, thank you for joining me on this podcast, and this is such a, a, an important topic, and, and I'm so glad to have you um, join me. So, first of all, thanks right off the bat. Hey, no problem. That's what I'm here for. Um, first of all, before we get into you know talking about the, the, the film and, and all kinds of questions I have for you, just give, by way of background, you know, the audience that's listening what your path was into the military uh, when you enlisted and your deployment and some of that history. Well, I, uh, I enlisted when I was 17. Uh, so I was still in high school when I signed up. Uh, don't ask me why, because I really couldn't tell you. Um, and I graduated basic training October 1st, 2004. And I'm going to kind of give you an idea of how sudden it was for me. Please. December 29th of 2004 is when I got my orders for my first deployment. And uh, we uh, were attached to the 3rd Infantry Division, uh, 4th Brigade, 3rd ID, and uh, we're stuck down in the Abu Ghraib Market District of uh, downtown western Baghdad. Uh, A little rinky-dink fob that our company held down on our own, and our job was basically just road patrols. We, We drove around and looked for bad guys doing bad things and when we found bad guys doing bad things we problem solved the situation but but you know i i don't want this to be kind of played down for people that don't know that was what was known as a hot zone yeah yeah it was uh the most violent neighborhood in the world at the time okay <laughs> i don't want the person listening to this saying oh okay it was in you know abu Ghraib, big deal what's you know no this is you're in the middle of really the hottest zone that was in Iraq at the time. Well, in, in Baghdad. In Baghdad. Yeah, Ambar province um, kind of took the cake there. But as far as just overall violence, uh, Abu Ghraib topped the, the Abu Ghraib market topped the, topped the charts. We were get, we'd get hit on average like a good week. Uh, we'd be getting hit every other day. Okay. So um, you were really in the middle of nonstop conflict. Yeah, yeah, it was either grenade attacks, IEDs, BBIEDs, uh, snipers, uh, to to full-on ambushes, indirect artillery fire, rockets, mortars. Uh, We were right next door to the embassy, too. Right. So anytime they would shoot mortars and other indirect fire weapons at the the embassy, because they couldn't shoot those things worth a darn, they land right in our laps. Now, and this is this is right into your first deployment. 
Yeah, yeah, it was my first deployment. I was 19 at the time. Okay. And how many tours did you do in Iraq? Two. Okay. Um, now, if, if you know, just we're, we're going to talk more about that, but by way of you know getting into the film and the reaction that we've had here in America, um, I'm assuming that you saw American Sniper. What was your reaction, and you know, not so much to critique it as a as a piece of art, just uh, you know, emotionally when you saw the film, you know, what did you leave with? Because the, when I left the theater, there was dead silence, and you know, everyone had whatever was going on in their mind. But as someone who served and and was there, what were the things going through your mind? When that's a good question. I saw it when it first came out, like on opening night. So. Uh... The, the theater was packed, and I was, I was honestly anticipating a traditional shoot-em-up war movie, uh, which this was not. Um, I thought overall what I appreciated about it is how it didn't glorify the violence. And one of the first missions that Chris Kyle is on in the, in the movie, um, you've seen it, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Otherwise, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> He has to shoot uh, the the kid and the the woman with the grenade. Right. And uh, the Marine next to him, who's not pulling the trigger, you know, is all, oh, great shot, way to go. And he's like, get your hands off me, don't touch me. Right. And he's genuinely bothered by it. It was that stuff that meant more to me uh, than, than any, much much else in the movie, than the heroics and the, the action sequences, is the fact for the first time in a long time, they humanized it. War movies usually don't do that. You know, it's usually the bad guys are the bad guys, the good guys are the bad, or the good guys, and they kill the bad guys, and everybody's happy. Right. And that's what I took away from it was was how it really humanized and brought a heavy dose of reality to to people who stereotype soldiers, to the media uh, who likes to paint anybody involved, especially in the Iraq War is uh, just somebody who wants the thrill of killing somebody. And that's not the case at all, and nobody really hits that until this movie came out. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that, because the, the public reaction to soldiers uh, is one of two extremes. The one extreme is the, the one that you said, and the other one uses a word that I, I know you just from our interaction that you seem to be very uncomfortable with, and that's the word hero. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now, you know, uh, here at home as civilians, you know, we look at what you're doing and we see the bravery attached to it because it is volunteer. Um, but as a soldier, when you're there, I mean, it's it, obviously being a hero is not going through your mind. Bravery is not going through your mind. Is it just you doing your job? Yeah, you don't, you don't process it till it's over. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, because I have, uh, even dealing with a traumatic brain injury, you know, your short-term memory gets sketchy, uh, is, you know, like accurately and strongly remembering things. But there are a few things I really remember from my deployment. After, after the first time that I, as an individual, got hit by an IED, um, everything obviously becomes really real. And we'd go out on patrol, and we'd be coming up on a area that was almost textbook for, for an IED to be planted. And you get that knot in your stomach of like, oh, man, 
there's probably something behind that guardrail on that highway that's going to explode and it's going to hurt. But you just put it out of your mind. And so when things would unfold, you during the the events you would you it wouldn't even register. You wouldn't think about what you were doing or what was going on. It wasn't until things were over that stuff would process. Right. It's uh, it's it's basically you doing what you were trained to do. Yeah. Yeah. You just you do what they've been beating into you for so long. You don't do it with the intentions of hey, this is gonna be really cool. Uh, it just. It, it's difficult to explain, uh, but it just happens. Well, it, it's the firemen running into the burning building. Yeah. You know, it, well, a lot of people look at that and say, wow, that's crazy. No, it's just what that training is about, and it's it's what that job entails. Yeah, it's, it's just what you do. Right. Um, now, let me ask you this. As, as you're talking about putting things into your mind and out of your mind, you know, one of the things that I, I have to ask and – you know, this is a tricky question. At what point, if at any point, does the politics of what's going on, where you are, enter your mind, leave your mind? You know, how do you reconcile any of that with what you're doing? Well, this is going to sound incredibly cliche, my my answer here. But, you know, you go into it, you're motivated, you're amped up, you know, Ooh, let's help the Iraqi people defend freedom, you know, all that stuff. And then your first time getting shot at, you never really think about politics again. Right. Uh, you really don't care anymore. You just want to get out alive, and you want to keep the guys around you that you're with alive. And that's the only thing that's ever in your mind. Yeah, it, it doesn't become about what, you know, what you're doing is, is right, wrong, what's the reason. You're there, you have a job to do, and it's protect the people around you. Um, you know, it's it's weird what's happening uh, with regards to this war in particular because of the way our media works, because of the way things seem to happen so fast, and because this war has been going on for so long, there's this weird phenomenon that's happening that the war is being portrayed in movies as it's happening. So, listen, I'm not taking away anything from The Hurt Locker. I'm not taking away anything from... Uh, American Sniper, or any of the movies that have been made while this war is going on. But, I mean, really, the war is being represented through Hollywood and not just through reporting. I mean, are we doing a bad job here in America of representing what's going on there? You know, that's a yes and no. Because um, there were a lot of things down in Baghdad, you know, like you said earlier, it was a hot zone. Um, that I'd sit in a chow hall, and they'd have CNN or MSNBC on, right? Right. And uh, the reporter would be like, I'm down in Baghdad, and people are protesting American involvement. And I had been on patrol for around 20 hours that day, and I'd be like, I didn't see any of that going on. <laughs> <laughs> it was mostly them running at us giving us the thumbs up or, you know, cheering or, you know, they, they'd come out yelling, love George Bush, love George Bush. Right, so it's, it's real selective reporting. Yeah, all of the, a lot of the bad stuff that I would see, and even coming home on, on the media with all oh, the Iraqis don't want us there. My personal experience was the exact opposite. Really? You'd get herds 
and herds of kids chasing your patrols down the highway, just screaming and cheering and all that stuff. And uh, my, it may be a little bold, but my personal opinion is that they absolutely loved us. And, I and didn't I, experience any civilian resentment, not firsthand. And I would think, you know, there had to be some of that. Otherwise, you know, your morale would have been absolutely at an all-time low if it was just nothing but protests. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you do your job if there wasn't this feeling that at least, you know, that some of the people wanted you there? Well, even some of our guys uh, in the local neighborhoods would, would play soccer with the local kids. And don't ask me how those guys were able to actually play soccer wearing a million pounds of gear, but they would. <laughs> uh, I never did. I'd watch. <laughs> but, you know, and then it comes back to we'd stop somewhere on a break or for the night or whatever, call it in, and – a new, an American news channel would be playing and it would be some reporter talking about how the Iraqis despise our involvement and wish we'd never been there. They'd be right. really? Because I just spent, you know, 18 to 48 hours, depending on what happened, out there and got nothing but hugs and handshakes. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's a very personal question I'm going to ask you now and, you know, it, and it comes from, again, the movie and, and seeing... The, the one scene where, where Chris runs into his brother who can't wait to get back and is, is obviously shaken. And, you know, I, I've had the, God, the, the privilege to perform at a couple bases and, and see soldiers that have come home. How has your adjustment been since you've returned? <laughs> uh, well, I uh, live in, in the woods with a, with a mean dog. <laughs> and uh it's you know get really in in depth with it is it's you it's it's more of a feeling of detachment is like you you leave uh you're gone for you know any average army deployments uh at that time in 05 on my first tour would range from 18 to 21 months right uh you get a two-week leave you come home on your two-week leave and you party like crazy for two weeks because you didn't think too much about it and then you'd leave and then you come back and it was like hey now it's time to uh to try to be normal and you feel completely uh detached and dissociated from everything that's going on around you because you miss so much you know your your old friends from high school or from the old neighborhood uh are doing what you know regular people do and you run into them and they're like so what have you been up to and you're just kind of like uh yeah, I've just been around. You don't even know how to how to relate to everybody is what I'm getting at. You, you know, that's uh, that's an unbelievable answer because, I and I have to tell you, I, I tend to try to think I'm in tune with what's going on, but on two deployments, basically, you're taken out of society for up to two, <laughs> four years and then brought back. And although you do have news and media, it's, it's really like, going away, coming back, and, and having gone through a time machine, and now, again, with catching up with friends and family, yeah, what exactly can you share from your experience, and do they want to hear it? Most, most, of, them, uh, that most of them want to hear the, the ugly side of it. You know, the, the how many people did you kill, or did any of your friends die, 
or what was the most insane thing that happened. And really? Yeah, that's the stuff you never want to talk about. Uh, and so you just kind of shut down uh, socially, and or when they talk about their their lives, uh, that's one. You know, I've been out of the military. I got out of the military in 2009, and it's it's a struggle that I've just accepted uh, will never end. Anywhere I go, where there's you know just full time civilians, as I call them, <clears throat> and they talk about their struggles or uh, complaints in life. You know, I drop my iPhone in the toilet. It's the worst day ever. Yeah. And just kind of stare at them. Yeah, it's it's perspective. Or you know, I'm so stressed out right now. I have a big big exam coming up, and you're like. <laughs> I mean that's I guess for some people stressful, but uh, you know what I'm I'm gonna put you on the spot again then. Um, you know one of my regrets and and I I tend to try to not live life with regrets, but if looking back and you say you know if there was one thing you would have done different, um, I, I think the one thing I would have done different, and I've said this to a friend of mine who did serve was, I did regret not serving this country, and. You know, when I would have gone in, it would have been when the first Iraq war broke out. In fact, friends of mine, you know, that I grew up with in high school went over there. And, you know, one of my friends that came back looked at me and said, you know what, Vince, don't, don't have any regrets over it. And I didn't get into the why. But listen, like someone would ask me about, you know, hey, I want to go to law school. Or, hey, I'm thinking about being a comedian. If someone came to you today, knowing what you know and, and living with what you live with, having served, and said, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about enlisting, what advice would you give them? <laughs> Bend over, grab your ankles. <laughs> no, I, you know, I've had that happen. Uh, and my advice to them is, uh, you know, good for you. It's, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about yourself. Uh, but it's, there's going to be a whole lot of suck. Uh, and don't expect it to not suck the majority of the time because it's going to. So just be prepared to be prepared to embrace the suck. That was on my second deployment. That was my squad's motto: embrace the suck. Wow. Because it does. <laughs> well, I mean, let's let's you know let's highlight a positive and a negative. Then, I mean, as you look at your life now, um, you know, what do you take out? from your service that's, you know, a, a negative that you've got to deal with? And, and what is the positive? Well, the, the biggest positive, the biggest, because I, I do that too. Uh, any situation in life, I try to find uh, takeaways from what could I have done differently or what can I do differently if this situation presents itself again in the future. And my biggest takeaway from the military is that no matter what kind of curveball, financial problems, horrible snowstorms, car problems, no matter what civilian life throws at me, it will never compare to somebody actively trying to kill me. And so I can shrug most of it off and, and laugh most of it off. And I know how much my body can handle before it begins to not want to work anymore. I know how much my brain can handle before it doesn't want to work anymore. I know how to perform under copious amounts of stress. And I have the military to thank for that. And if you have to take the negative, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming it would be some of the visions and experiences that you can't erase. Yeah, that's a good assumption. Uh, the overall, the, the whole uh, detachment issue is, uh, you know, I'm 29 years old, uh, 
and I feel like I'm twice that. Uh, and and that's the negative is fun things that fun video games, fun movies, you know, things that people guys my age are usually into. You know, the shoot 'em up video games are not right uh, fun anymore. And then the whole uh, the whole detachment issue is there's outside of being surrounded by other uh, combat vets. Uh, that whole I would like for to know what it's like to be a regular civilian to where the biggest stresses in life are uh, final exams and such. Right. Now, again, I'm going to get personal. If, if you want to delve into it, great. If not, you can always dodge it. Um, you know, a lot of what we're seeing in the Middle East, you know, with ISIS and, and you know, a lot of the news coverage is with regards to the Muslim religion and, you know, jihad and do it for God. And, you know, I've always tried to tell people there's another side to that. And there's the side that our soldiers go in with. And a lot of them, because they're from, you know, like you see, you know, Chris Kyle from the South or, or from where you're from, as you say, in the middle of the woods. Um, you know, there's there's a strong sense of religion that I've noticed in really all of our branches of the armed service. How do you kind of reconcile you know your faith with serving and and the job you're doing and even now since coming home is there an issue that you have to deal with there or am i overstating that you know i never put a whole lot of thought into it especially over there i never put a whole lot of thought into it it's actually funny uh you bring this uh you bring this exact topic up is uh my my brother who is a, a big he's catholic converting into catholicism big church goer uh talk to talk me into going with him so he's like hey you'd really like it and last week uh one of the big topics hot topics uh was was war uh, and there was that little separate actually more than a little separation for me uh to hear the thoughts of war and killing from a very devout never had to deal with it on uh, religious side and it had some sting to it, but you know, like Chris Kyle says in the in the movie, I am more than prepared to to answer for everything that I did over there when when the end comes down. Uh, during deployment, I never put a whole lot of thought into it. Uh, we would our squad leader would do a mission prayer and all that stuff, but really, it was never in the forethought of my brain, and I never thought of the guys we were fighting as Muslims. They were just the bad guys, the terrorists, the Mahdi militia. I uh, never even really thought much about their religion either. Right. So as much as, you know, is placed on the fact that it's a religious war, you know, one of the things that I've been saying, and I started talking in, the, in this podcast before I had you on about what happened with the Jordanian pilot and, you know, the, the terror groups that are really part of the Muslim religion represent about 2% of the Muslim world, which is, you know, because it's such a vast number, it's 2 million people, which is a lot of people, but it's still only 2%. And, you know, the Muslim faith is, is really a peace faith. This isn't about religion. This is about something else. And it's usually tied to, you know, money, politics, or something other than religion. I, I don't see how religion really comes to play in any of this. No, and it, it bothers me, especially um, hearing people 
in general, uh, you know, on, on Facebook and, you know, like you said, so, social media is a blessing, but it's also a curse because it gives every idiot a voice. <laughs> uh, and things about how, you know, we need to exterminate Muslims, that people who actually advocate the genocide of Muslims, and they don't see a problem with that. And, you know, you try to explain to them that it's, it, that's not what it is. Right. Uh, it's not a religious problem. It's, there's lunatics in, in every group uh, in history, in every religion, in every group of history. There's always a few wackos. Because there's just wackos. Yeah, Germany had a whole lot of them quite <laughs> some time ago. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, we, we had, you know, Christian crusades. You know, the, everyone's really had a turn in the barrel at being the bad guy. And, you know, the, the fact that religion is twisted into this is bothersome to me because, you know, in its root, and, and I know you have people like Bill Maher and religiousness and, and everything else with atheism. I, you know, I'm a studier of, you know, theology. I find that all religion is really based in something good. All of the prophets have something really good to say. Yeah, and it's most of your major religions are almost, with the exception of a few characters, uh, identical. Exactly. It, it's about so, peace. Yeah, and so for people to say that Islam is a religion of violence because of the actions of the terrorists, I don't think is even remotely accurate. It, it's not even close. Because it's like, like you know, like I said, in my time fighting them. It was never a. It was never a forethought. Right. It was never fighting Muslims. It was fighting terrorists. And some of the Iraqi people now that have been interviewed, uh, because Iraq actually had a very positive reception of uh, of American sniper. They loved it. It was very popular in Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi people who saw it that have been interviewed, because apparently we thought Americans thought that was really weird, uh, said the same thing that Chris Kyle wasn't killing. Muslims, he was killing terrorists. That was right. their look at. Uh, it wasn't a religious thing to them either. All right, you ready to be put on the spot again? <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. Now, what, one of the things that I have an issue with with social media is um, when I see people on certain holidays, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Fourth of July, put up a post that is, you know, support the troops. And it's nothing more than a post on Facebook, support the troops. And, and I'm one of these people, you, you just can't walk around and say, support the troops and, and say, yeah, you know, that look, I, I'm in, you know, in support of the troops. As someone that's come back and, and you know, I want to give you the last word here. What is it that we can do as civilians with regards to troops coming back to, you know, help you either assimilate you know, what, what is the support that we can give to show our appreciation? What can we do to make this somehow better, easier for you? What is the support that really needs to be done? The, that's a really good question. Boy, you did put me on the spot. Because <laughs> I could go on all day about that one. Is it, my, my biggest thing uh, that I observe in a civilian society is... I want, of course, there's a lack of understanding, but there's no possible way that a uh, full-time civilian could ever remotely come close to understanding. So maybe, maybe more patience and education. Uh, I hear a lot of things, people who just don't think, and they say people who live in a life of violence 
have no respect for human life. And it's, I want to say to them, do you have any idea how open-ended that statement is? Uh, I'm assuming that you meant terrorism, but you hit everybody who's ever been in the military and law enforcement as well, because violence is a part of that path, because people are completely unaware. Uh, And since we've been at war for so long, people are also unaware that a lot of our veterans, our combat veterans, are between the ages of, you know, 25 and 35. We think of veterans as being old storm the boat, the beaches of Normandy. Right. And so what people need to do is, is be more open and understanding, uh, especially when it comes to things like post-traumatic stress disorder. That's one of the most misrepresented things in, in the media, is that less than 2% of uh, PTSD cases are tied to are are violent at all or and end up in violence or even suicides but because a couple of guys uh go crazy everybody oh ptsd stay away from them or people with ptsd need to have certain rights removed or they should all be institutionalized or uh whatever and that's not the case at all it's just a lack of understanding by the overall population they don't want to put the effort in into understanding uh, what we deal with, what we've dealt with, and, and how to handle it. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense at all. No, it, it absolutely does. And I'd say that's that's the biggest thing uh, that, that civilians could do is you've got a buddy who's a veteran, who's, who's a war vet, a combat vet specifically. Don't ask him the usual, you know, oh, how many people did you kill? Or what's the most jacked up thing that happened to you? Uh, but just hear what he has to say. Uh, most of us, are afraid to talk about it to civilians because we know the civilians don't understand it. We'll just think you're a psycho. And they'll, oh, wow, uh, you live in the woods and you own guns and you have a mean dog. There must be something seriously wrong with you <laughs> is the overall per- uh, perception. But it's no, it's not at all. It's the fact that I've just chosen this path uh, because there's no real level of understanding between the two lifestyles. Right. No, it's, it's, it's something that again, and and this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, I wanted to have people that served, you know, speak on, you know, not only the movie about the movie and what the movie does, but like, even for me, when I left the theater, I, I heard some people that felt what seemed to be pity for Chris uh, Kyle and I certainly don't think any of you want that because I, I think that's a, a whole other extreme emotion that isn't really what any of you are looking for or need. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Actually, a quick way to uh, find yourself on the shit list. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's not about feeling pity for you guys. Um, you you made a choice. You know, you went through something that was part of your job, very traumatic. Like you know, again, a fireman on on going into a burning building and the the things they see, you know, whether it's, you know, dead animals, dead people, police officers, there are certain jobs that this is part of. And listen, any first responder, you know, you're going to see some traumatic stuff. Um, and that stuff weighs on you emotionally. You don't feel pity for those people. You just have to have a better understanding of what they're going through. I mean, am I right? Yeah, it's, it's a better understanding of what they deal with. You know, there's a, there's a million and one books out there uh, written by combat veterans going all the way back to even World War One. Uh, there's books out there. You know, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is one of my favorite authors who writes on the psychology of combat. Uh, it 
you can get any of his books on Amazon, you know, for 10, 15 bucks, buy one, read it. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a good look into uh, what goes on in somebody's head that's been involved in any kind of life threatening situation, not just war, but any of that stuff. Uh, it's a it's a good look as to the uh, the physical responses to it, and then the uh, the emotional aftermath. Uh, and if I think as a, as a society, if civilians would do a better job at understanding uh, the emotional aftermath, then there wouldn't be such a great feeling of, of detachment between veterans and the civilian world. And I really liked how uh, uh, American Sniper spent almost as much time uh, talking, showing that, that level of detachment. You know, the scene when he's with his wife at the barbecue and she's just jibber-jabbering away. Right. And he's kind of spaced out. Yeah. And I think that scene alone sums it up. Is He's like, I can't relate to, to my wife's problems or drama or goings-on at all. I don't even know what to say to her right now. You know, and that's the overall mindset that we have. It's not that we don't like civilians. It's that they tell us something and we're just kind of like, uh-huh. Because right. we don't know what to say. Our lives are so completely different. Well, it's, you know, one of the things I've tried to do with this podcast and, and when I started doing it, you know, a lot of people expected it to be all humor because they know me as a stand up comic. But what I wanted to do is really bring my other background uh, into it to try to educate people and, and kind of open up people's minds, because I, I think a lot of what is going on in our country is we've become very self-absorbed. And we almost don't want to hear the bad news. Uh, it's almost like the less we know about what's going on, the safer it makes us in our little world. And listen, I'm not saying life shouldn't have comedy and fun and it should be all news and information. That's not what my life is. That's why I go on stage. That's why I make people laugh. But there's got to be a balance and you have to be educated about not just what's going on in America, what's going on in the world. I, I agree wholeheartedly. As, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I've encountered uh, that's always bothered me is it seems that what's going on with the Kardashians is more important than this Jordanian pilot getting burned alive. You know, it's, it's funny you're saying that because the, the interview that I had uh, with the other um, soldier that served, BT, said <clears throat> when he was in Iraq, he was amazed how they were in, um, you know, they were in camp and they were watching CNN. And the big story was that Anna Nicole Smith had died <laughs> and it was getting a ton of attention. And he said, we were just looking around at each other saying, really, that's the number one story right now in America is, you know, the death of Anna Nicole Smith. You've got to be kidding me. Oh. <clears throat> so, a couple of years ago, this girl I was dating, uh, her sister came to me, and we had been, a, this was a couple of, yeah, 2013, so we'd been in Iraq for 10 years, and she says, I had, she was like 19 or 20, she says, I had no idea we were at war in Iraq until I saw a YouTube video of an Apache gun cam. Are you kidding me? You know, not at all. Wow. <laughs> so you can imagine how I felt, what? what my reaction was. That's I, that's mind-numbing to me. Yeah, we were, but I was like, yeah, we've been there for 10 years. What did you, how'd you miss it? You're 20 years old. You've been alive for the whole thing. Wow. 
<laughs> how did you miss this? But, That's unreal. You know, she's spent the majority of her life glued to uh, MTV reality TV shows, Anna Nicole Smith story. Those were what was important. You know, Michael Jackson dying, uh, and com- managed to completely miss the fact that we had been at war for ten years. <laughs> completely miss. Yeah. Not even like in the recesses of our mind, she completely missed it. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, uh, I could talk to you for hours. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to stay on hold because I'm going to talk to you once I wrap this podcast up. Let me give you the last word. If there's any message you want to get out uh, with regards to anything, with service, non-service, civilian life, anything, what's the message? You know, my, my message is uh, that I think speaks volumes and people can interpret it and I take it for what for what it's worth. It's, it's not really even my message. It was a post that I saw from a uh, Marine Corps comic strip uh, after that last Fort Hood shooting that we had, uh, I think, last year. Right. Uh, the, the guy who runs the comic strip made a Facebook post, and he said, we've been at war for 10 years now. Can we stop being afraid of veterans? Wow. And, you know, that's really, I think, to me, that says everything that I could ever want to say. Yeah. Well, that's the way to end the podcast. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stay on hold because I'm going to talk to you on my own. I'm going to be selfish on this one. Uh, but I want to wrap up this podcast. Um, again, I want to thank the guest, uh, DR, for joining us. I'm, I'm withholding his identity for purposes of you know maintaining my promise to him. But I, I am so proud to have him on the show. Uh, another great podcast, everybody. Please continue listening. Spread the word. This is what these podcasts are about, educating, giving people insight into things that maybe they don't know. So thank you for joining me, uh, Vince August Podcast. Uh, listen for the next episode coming soon. Thank you.